0: might make a start I think. Uh, thank you very much for coming along. This is week 2 of the Oxford Transitional Justice Research Seminar series. Um my name's Phil Clark. Um, I'm an advisory board member for OTJR, but more importantly, it's a real honour this evening to have uh, Kirsten Ainley with us here today. Um, Kirsten is a lecturer in international relations at the London School of Economics. Uh, She's also based in the Centre for the Study of Human Rights at LSE. Uh, Her research and her work, I'm sure, will already be very familiar to many of you, but she works broadly in the realm of international ethics, international political theory, and also the politics of international criminal law, a very topical issue given the events at the Special Court for Sierra Leone this week. Um, Many of you, I'm sure, will be familiar um, with Kirsten's co-authored book, uh, Understanding International Relations, which came out with Paul Grave a couple of years ago. This evening she's going to speak on the topic of excesses of responsibility and the power of political approaches to accountability. Kirsten, it's uh, great to have you with us. Thanks.
1: Thank you very much, Phil, and thank you everybody for coming. I see it's the start of term, enthusiasm, so I (laughs) (laughs) hope that's too diminished by the time I finish talking. Um, What I wanted to talk to you about today was based on an argument that I made in a recent article on excesses of responsibility in situations of atrocity. Um, the piece was published in Ethics and Social Affairs just before Christmas and has generated a reasonable amount of discussion from people getting in touch with me, not necessarily agreements, in fact not a great deal of agreements, so I'm looking to push the piece a bit further into a book project, that seemed to me to be quite a lot once I started thinking about these issues um, that people were interested in and hadn't even explored. So what I was going to do today is talk about the core argument in the article and how I'm thinking about extending it into a wider project. Because it's such, at such an early stage, it means that I can pick your brains for ideas, both on whether it sounds like a feasible project at all, but also on how to, whether you can think of examples that I'm missing or should be added in, how to push some of this analysis further. And at the heart of what I'm doing is, is exploring... Accountability mechanisms, the mess that I think we're in in general on accountability at the moment with uh, leaning towards law and and courts uh, to adjudicate questions of responsibility in particular to make them questions of criminal accountability uh, and all of the different layers of accountability that are going on around that that don't fit well with the discourse of individual criminal responsibility. I want to look, and I'll talk uh, more about this later, at a lot of these mechanisms if I push this. The the article was much more of a conceptual piece that came up with a kind of recommendation at the end of it, Um, and I want to to push the empirical study a lot further if I do it, by looking at actual accountability mechanisms and how uh, they work. So I start in the piece uh, by noting that through the 20th century we saw an unprecedented individualism, legalism and criminalisation of responsibility in international relations start of the century, if any entity was held responsible for what we might now talk about as atrocity, uh, it was the state um, held politically responsible if uh, entities were held responsible at all. An incredible change through the 20th century of a lot of law being generated, a kind of internationalisation of criminal law and a criminalisation of international law, so we end up at the end of the 20th century with uh, various international criminal tribunals, hybrid tribunals and so on, and an international criminal court. What I think um, we see now is a very common reaction uh, to news reports of what looks like atrocities, civil conflict, uh, are calls for accountability <coughs> mechanisms of some kind. Lots, in general, lots of calls for trials. When you think about when the, the situation uh, uh, was deteriorating in Libya uh, last year, they, almost immediately there were calls for trials, and very quickly the situation was referred to the ICC, and very quickly the ICC acted. You also see in the text of documents like the Goldstones Commission's report on Gaza, um, uh, the report by the panel of experts set up to look at accountability in Sri Lanka, um, uh, this idea that we should be looking for individual accountability, that trials are somehow the epitome of accountability, that's what we should go for if we can find the individuals that are criminal uh, and prosecute them. But the shift of focus from collective political responsibility to individual criminal responsibility um, hasn't been without problems. What we see is, on the surface, in war crimes trials, attempts to hold individuals responsible for directly planning, commissioning or executing international crimes, but a closer examination of the trials tells quite a different story. Defendants, in fact, are being tried for inherently collective actions. In general, they're being charged as being part of joint criminal enterprises. There's also now a substantial interest in using um, existing but redeveloped law on state responsibility to hold states accountable for atrocities. So Bosnia and Herzegovina and Croatia have both sought to hold Serbia responsible for genocide at the ICJ. I argue that what this signals is is there are excesses of responsibility that aren't currently being mopped up within the war crimes trials regime, that this regime can't capture. Now I talk about part of the problem with this is that the system is based uh, on two assumptions, both of which I think are mistaken. One is that responsibility for war crimes or atrocity is principally a characteristic of individuals. And in order to end impunity, to end cycles of violence and so on, these individuals should be held responsible for their crimes. The second assumption, which I think is also open to challenge, is that courts are the most appropriate institutions to adjudicate on questions of responsibility, to hold those responsible for harm to account. Criticisms that are made of other approaches are that they're political in the worst kinds of sense. So, unless you have a because you're going to have accountability mechanisms which are tainted by partisanship and power that can't offer sufficiently robust protection of the innocent or punishment of the guilty. And the implication of uh, some of these arguments is that trials do this, trials do provide uh, you know, good punishment, protection for the innocents. they don't have any power political uh, implications at all. Um. The assumptions are, are widely accepted by those people um, who are seeking to bring justice. I've done quite a lot of interviews in the last few years with court staff, with prosecution lawyers and so on. Not many people question these assumptions and they find it quite hard, maybe because I'm totally wrong, or maybe because they find it quite hard, to see that JCE is particularly a joint criminal enterprise and some of the other charges that you see in common at, at war crimes trials are effectively about collective action. They'd like to see, you know, it's just it's just a range of individuals and they're all separable, they're just not separable sufficiently that we can charge them individually, we still have to charge them as part of this kind of joint criminal enterprise. We can't charge them without reference to others, but nevertheless, their responsibility is individual. Um, Because of some of these problems, uh, I think that uh, criminal trials are very limited in the ability to respond to atrocity, and so what I do in that piece is, is propose a reinvigoration of notions of political responsibility to uh, be considered alongside notions of criminal responsibility. I'm not trying to say that trials should be scrapped, they don't do any work at all, they don't do any useful work at all, saying that they don't do all that we would like them to do. And when we try to use all crimes trials to encompass wider notions of accountability, that's the point at which they fail. And things I've gone later to talk about in terms of joint criminal enterprises when some of the charges of JC, particularly in the Special Court for Sierra Leone, um, uh, some of the, the way that this jurisprudence has been developed um, looks a lot like politics and it looks basically nothing like law, but I'll get on to that later. Um, so in the first section, I, uh, I talk about the, kind of the basis for uh, getting to a critique of trials is, uh, is to establish that there are excesses of responsibility. Establish that, and this is an incredible oversimplification, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, but in, in, in peacetime, if I kill my neighbour, who's Canadian, in order to steal his car, I'm guilty of his murder. And I might ask for things to be taken into account in mitigation, in my sentence, uh, but I've killed my neighbour, steal his car, um, and I'm guilty of murder. If I kill my Canadian neighbour at a time when there is a policy from my government, which is anti-Canadian, when I believe that I might get away with killing my neighbour because he's Canadian, even though I want to steal his car, uh, or some part of my intention, maybe, to attack him because he's Canadian. And I'm still responsible for his murder in a straightforward sense, but there's a lot of other actors that we would want to talk about as well. Who's generating the anti-Canadian policy? Who's allowing it to come about? Who's turning a blind eye when, uh, when attacks on Canadians were made that allowed situations to escalate to murder? So I guess the, the heart of the argument is that responsibility isn't like a, a cake if you divide it up and there are certain pieces that once you start having more actors involved everybody gets a smaller piece of the cake, everybody's responsibility is somehow smaller. I think it's much more complicated than that and I think we find that quite difficult to recognise. What courts do is simplify, What legal cases do in general, is simplify. And when you simplify, you have to get rid of uh, a lot of the other actors that may have been tremendously important to a crime being able to to be carried out the way that it was. So this is what I mean by excesses of responsibility. The kind of responsibility that courts cover cannot encompass all of the responsibility that we might like to look at, if the purpose of courts is not just to administer punishment, (coughs) uh, but it's to look at ways that uh, uh, violence and sociality can be avoided in the future. So I'm going to go on to talk about what it is that courts do and how they fail to hold individuals responsible individually. Um, and I look at three different doctrines the doctrine of command responsibility, the doctrine of job criminal an enterprise um, and the doctrine of state responsibility. That's three doctrines that are quite commonly used. this Doctrine of State Responsibility is not commonly used in war crimes trials, it can't be, the first two are, but the Doctrine of State Responsibility and the Articles of State Responsibility we're seeing increasing interest in uh, through um, cases at the International Court of Justice. So I won't say very much about um, any of the three of them, so I'd like to get on to um, talking about uh, other accountability mechanisms as well, but let me just highlight what I think is probably most important about them. The command responsibility is relatively uncontroversial in the literature, certainly in comparison to joint criminal enterprise as a mode of liability. Command responsibility says that um, if you know or should have known about actions your subordinates were taking, you may be responsible for them because you were in a direct relationship with command. Now what's worth pointing out is that the kind of evidence that you would look for for command responsibility doesn't fit well with an idea of individual criminal responsibility. So you're not looking for intent of a commander. You don't need direct evidence to link the alleged perpetrator, the commander in this case, to the crime. In fact, command responsibility is about a kind of philosophical construct of what somebody should have known given the position that they were in, given the social role effectively that they were playing and maybe a very formal social role. And Prosecutors have found it very hard to establish command responsibility, so despite the fact it's frequently charged, and uh, I'm sure you know Charles Taylor was um, uh, charged as well as the kind of traditional war crimes trial prosecution uh, tactic is usually to fling an enormous number of charges and possible modes of liability uh, at the indictment and hope that some of them stick. Of course, in the case of Charles Taylor, some of them did stick, but only the most minor ones. But command responsibility, you'd imagine, would be a kind of the, the big prize because the narrative around trials of senior people is usually that they're masterminds somehow. So even if you can't re- get them as perpetrators of direct crimes, you still want to pin them as the mastermind. People talk about Karadich as a mastermind, Taylor as a mastermind. Command responsibility failed on Taylor, and actually command responsibility tends to fail quite a lot. Uh, Mark Osiel uh, noted that as of 2008 only one person had been convicted at the ICTY solely on the basis of command responsibility. They may be tacked onto other uh, modes of liability as well. Once you've found that somebody is guilty by way of joint criminal enterprise, then command responsibility might be easier to find. Um, but it is an uncontroversial, but actually not an altogether very successful doctrine. So I then talk about joint criminal enterprise, which is another way in which those who are charged as individually responsible at war crimes trials have their actions in the mix with other actions judged. And JCE um, Under joint criminal enterprise, a defendant is found guilty of crimes committed by others as if they had committed them themselves. So the point is not that they are convicted for aiding and abetting, for assisting, for planning anything else. They are convicted as if they committed the murder or the rape themselves. Um, They may not have participated in the crime that they're convicted for. They may not have even known about the crime they're convicted for, but the idea of joint criminal enterprise is that it is possible to act with others in such a way that we're aware that our participation and the actions that the group are going to take could lead to sets of crimes. There's a lot of um, complicated, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not going to profess to understand it, um, a lot of uh, jurisprudence here about whether or not the common plan that the group needs to have formed uh, needs to be a criminal plan. Um, it's likely that it does, although this was questioned at the RUF uh, leaders trial in Sierra Leone when they were looking to establish a common plan that was simply a common plan that crimes followed from, but it didn't in itself have any uh, inherent criminality. There are different levels, and I'm happy to talk about these in, uh, in Q&A if you'd like me to, different levels of JCE, but the JCE, the kind of joint criminal enterprise um, that is entirely opposite to command responsibility it looks to be very easy. To prosecute people for is Joint Criminal Enterprise 3, JC 3, it's, um, which doesn't require any evidence of direct participation. Um, the group that are involved in the JC don't need to have any kind of formal organisation into a, a military, political, or administrative structure. The common plan uh, for the commission of a crime, which is necessary to establish JC in the, per- in the first place, the common plan doesn't need to have been. Uh, form, previously formulated, it can materialise during actions. Or, um, when you really start to think about this, it's quite frightening as to the JCEC. You may yourself have been involved in <laughs> um, that. You know, I'm, sure, I'm not sure how we know when a common plan materialises, so there, should, there needs to be no evidence of it. it doesn't, there doesn't even need to have been a conversation about a common plan. Uh, but those in positions of authority need to be able to judge that a common plan clearly materialised at some point during uh, action. And the accused doesn't need to have participated in furthering the criminal uh, activities of the group, the criminal purpose of the group. They just need to have intended to do so. So you end up with individuals who can be involved in um, atrocity, who have uh, participated in some way with a group, some members of which have later committed crimes, often, often dreadful crimes. Um, and courts look to hold all members who could reasonably have been said to have uh, been part of a common plan responsible as direct perpetrators for the crimes that resulted. Carried it has been, uh, done. this was first developed, and again I'm happy to say more about this if anybody um, has any uh, interest in it. It was first developed in the Tadic case at the ICTY, and it was very much restricted to a small group, and it, a, a very obviously existent group, a group that had met each other, that went and did things together. They went to the pub spathic cleansing of the village and murder resulted, and it was judged that murder was a, a reasonably foreseeable um, uh, outcome of going together armed to ethnically plent a village. By the time we get to Caraditch, Karaditch has been indicted at the ICTY, and I'll just read out the, um, uh, the quote, it was a paraphrase of the indictment. Uh, he's been indicted on the basis of his participation from October 1991 until November 1995 in a JC that had as its objective, so its common purpose, uh, the permanent removal of Bosnian Muslims and Bosnian Croats from Bosnian Serb-Claimed Territory uh, in Bosnia-Herzegovina through crimes such as genocide, persecution, extermination, murder, deputation and inhumane acts. And the prosecutor has charged that Karadzic either shared the intent for the commission of the crimes with other members of the JCE or shared an objective including at least the crimes of deputation and inhumane acts uh, but should be held responsible on the basis that the other acts were foreseeable. By the JCE. And he shared these apparently uh, with some of the thousands of members of the JCE who are listed. So the, the, the joint criminal enterprise, the group um, that committed the crime, or some members of which committed the crimes for which prosecutors are seeking to hold it's responsible, includes thousands of people. So now to uh, a point where the doctrine of JCE is expanded uh, so significantly it is not too difficult to get people prosecuted under it, but it's starting to look, as I said earlier, um, not a lot like law at all, but a lot like politics. Um, The the case of Augustine Bale uh, in the RUF trial at the Special Court for Sierra Leone uh, was very interesting in this regard. It's probably the most controversial decision, or is it the most controversial decision on joint criminal enterprise that I've come across? In the words of a dissenting judge, is Bale was found guilty. Uh, of participation in a JCE, a very serious JCE. In the words of the dissenting judge, he was found guilty of crimes that he did not intend, to which he did not significantly contribute, and which were not a reasonably foreseeable consequence of the crimes that he did intend. What Bao, um, uh, from my memory, uh, was guilty of the direct perpetration of slapping a UN peacekeeper, um, his convictions are very significantly, um, uh, uh, extend very significantly beyond this, because of the doctrine of joint the enterprise. So we have these two doctrines that get used within uh, individual trials to try and uh, account for the fact that when we start to do it, we try and uh, hold people responsible individually, um, They, we find that uh, actions are much muckier and uh, messier than that. But then look at the uh, way that the articles of state responsibility have been used, and going to skip through this. I look at the uh, case of, um, the, in 2007 case where the ICJ found Serbia uh, guilty of failing to prevent the genocide uh, of 8,000 Bosnian Muslims at Srebrenica in, in 1995, and failing to punish the alleged perpetrators uh, or surrender them to the ICTY. It was the first time the court had ruled on the Articles of State Responsibility, and in general it was a very, uh, people were very underwhelmed by the ruling. Um, because the court didn't rule that, ge- uh, that Severe had committed genocide, that it was responsible as a state for genocide, uh, uh, but it sort of violated an obligation to prevent genocide. Also, um, uh, found that there was no special intent uh, for genocide apart from around uh, Srebrenica, but even then, found that the perpetrators weren't under the effective control of Belgrade, so the finding of state responsibility was very weak in this case. Now, some argue this gives a posthumous acquittal to Milosevic, um, who was charged on genocide, and the the uh, the decisions hadn't been made at the time of his death. But it was certainly what uh, what we've seen at the ICJ is that there isn't a reasonable Um, addition to uh, the idea of individual criminal responsibility being developed, so it looks unlikely from the the first cases whether the the articles of state responsibility have been used. The court did ask that uh, Serbia uh, declared that it had failed to comply with an obligation uh, to prevent genocide. Uh, this was the suitable um, response to what Serbia was found to have done. And the Serbian parliament did pass a resolution in 2010 condemning the Srebrenica massacre. Uh, the resolution didn't um, acknowledge the massacre as genocide, it didn't acknowledge Serbian so publicity in it, it didn't represent a majority view, it passed by only two votes in the parliament. So in terms of what's come out of this, uh, in this case for accountability and what we like to see in the future, um, it's pretty disappointing. You also get then, When you start looking at what's happened over former Yugoslavia, this this terribly jumbled picture of who has been held responsible and how. And um, just to entertain you, um, in February 2006, courts in The Hague were simultaneously hearing cases in which Slobodan Milosevic was being held individually responsible, brackets as part of a joint criminal enterprise, close brackets, for genocide in the former Yugoslavia, while Serbia was being held responsible as a state for the same crime. Since then, two Bosnian Serbs, Vera and Popovic, have been found guilty of genocide at Srebrenica by way of JCE, they were acting under the orders of Karadzic. Karadzic is on trial for the same crime via a JCE in which neither Vera nor Popovich are named. It's a very complicated <laughs> picture. <laughs> um, and as I said at the beginning, what I'm not looking to do is undermine the idea that war crimes trials are necessary. In fact, I think war crimes trials are very important uh, and can do a lot of good work. What I am looking to do is say that they're stretched now to a point of, uh, of being unable to adequately respond to courts for accountability, and when they seek to do that, the kind of doctrines that have been developed uh, are not satisfactory as far as law is concerned. So from the beginning, I said that critics often say that measures other than courts are political um, uh, and, uh, and they're unfair in some ways. Well, it's, it looks quite a lot like trials uh, when they're pushed to their extreme Uh, are also political and unfair. Now, as an aside, I would argue trials are always political, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think they're political in the the ways that we don't want them to be at the extremes. So, the current accountability regime, as well as being complex, doesn 't include accountability consideration for many actors who are involved so the example of the, uh, of I mean, killing my Canadian neighbor for his car uh, there are many people who might be uh, we might want to hold accountable for uh, a situation in which that is possible I also want to hold accountable to international actors and some of the work i 've been doing recently on Cambodia has made me uh, more and more interested in the way that war crimes trials depoliticise and they very strongly de-internationalize conflict. So defense lawyers for political leaders often want to call uh, foreign leaders, foreign militaries to come to court to say that we were all talking about this, you wanted me to do this, you were supplying arms. And yet, this was particularly the case in Charles Taylor, known reasonably well, the court was very keen to make sure that the discussion didn't get too complicated and involve Gaddafi because if Gaddafi is supporting Taylor, who's supporting Gaddafi? Well, it's quite embarrassing who's supporting Gaddafi at the same time as Gaddafi was supporting Taylor. So we don't really want to go that way because it, because it, it makes the issue more murky. and we want to focus on the actual criminals rather than international politics. And yet, of course, international actors have lots of responsibility, uh, not necessarily criminal responsibility, uh, but they have lots of responsibility for facilitating conditions of atrocity. And the situation in Cambodia is a perfect example. Huge numbers of international actors have managed to avoid any kind of accountability uh, for both enabling the Khmer Rouge period uh, and uh, for preventing accountability mechanisms in Cambodia for a very, very long time after they were being requested. They may not have principal responsibility but they have responsibility which isn't being really looked at in in any serious sense anywhere. So a group of actors who are missing uh, and accountability mechanisms that uh, don't seem to be working. One of the ways of approaching this is to think about responsibility in a different way and think about political rather than uh, legal responsibility Uh, and one of the ways to do this and something I cut out a long discussion of when I published the article and I'd like to put back in, uh, if I do it as a book, uh, is through people like Jaspers and Arendt looking at uh, at political guilt or political responsibility, but also, um, Bernard Williams has done some very interesting stuff on guilt versus shame, and it's a really useful insights on shame and atonement that are hard to fit into a narrative which focuses on crime and punishment. Um, What I would intend to do um, in the book should it get published uh, would be to after saying well here are the problems where the accountability is as uh, it's currently running look at other kinds of mechanisms that are out there and we're seeing a, a sort of inquiry-itis as Gary Simpson has called it a lot of people setting up inquiries and fact-finding commissions and truth-seeking commissions and all kinds of commissions uh, at the moment groups of experts who are supposed to report on things it's a um, it's a snowballing series of Uh, uh, commissions and groups and reports and so on, But I don't think, although I'm very happy to be creative and it would be nice to be basing this in the literature that exists, I don't think it's been looked at very much So why this is happening and what its implications are. So At the beginning, some of the commission reports I've looked at seem to be pushing towards the crime and punishment, that they're a precursor to trials. But I don't think that they have to be, and I think that's what I would like to do in examining um, various different uh, mechanisms and the kind of mechanisms that I want to look at um, are international fact-finding commissions, the Goldstone Commission on Gaza, for instance, the Sri Lanka Commission, uh, public inquiries that are held within states, so the US and the uh, UK, UK have both had, uh, inquiries on uh, Iraq, but um, the inquiries on Guantanamo, Bloody Sunday Inquiries, uh, recent uh, was recently in the news. Also to look at um, Corporations, um, the law of corporations, so the anti-claims statute in the U.S., corporate (coughs) self-regulation, and then broadening accountability mechanisms all the way out. Think about the naming and shaming practices of NGOs and civil society. Try to categorise or at least think through all of the various ways in which different actors are held accountable to some extent for um, the the destruction caused by civil conflict. uh, and by war. And from there think about are any of these a really useful way to hold other sets of access to account and of course a big question is going to be whether or not they can work with courts and trials or whether they would work alone. Um, where I think I'm going um, is to talk about truth commissions but Truth Commissions are not just as Truth Commissions, but Truth and Responsibility Commissions. Um, truth Commissions were initially intended to be accountability mechanisms. So the early South American Truth Commissions were set up as modes of accountability as, uh, and, and entirely intended to establish accountability. And yet, for a reason I've yet to identify, um, they are being talked about now as if they just provide an account. That what Truth Commissions do is they provide an account of the past. They don't hold to account. And I am interested to know what this is, and it seems to, from a, you know, a, a reasonable exploration of the literature, um, that this is a, a fairly common view, the International Centre for Transitional Justice talks about um, 40 official truth commissions have been created to provide an account of past abuses. Now, Amnesty doesn't talk about accountability when it sets out the goals of truth commissions. It says truth commissions should clarify as far as possible the facts about past human rights violations, provide evidence um, uh, uh, to... To uh, criminal judicial proceedings uh, and formulate recommendations for providing full reparation to victims and their families, but doesn't talk about accountability at all. So, something's happened um, with the original idea of truth commissions uh, and the way that they're being used now. And again, from a very cursory look at the mandates of commissions, again, they seem to be much more interested in telling a story than in holding to account, than providing account rather than holding to account. And I think it's a bit of a waste, I think there's a real possibility for uh, other accountability I think, well I think there's a necessity for other accountability mechanisms um, if, if the response to atrocity is to continue to be, to hold some actors to account, I think courts aren't good enough, but there are mechanisms in place that could be interesting and useful here, and could repoliticise conflict in a way that trans depoliticises it, so it could take into account a broader range of actors because you're not only looking at who to put in jail Whose guilt you, you can establish beyond reasonable doubt. You're looking on bands of probabilities that, who contributed, what kinds of individuals and groups contributed to the environment in which certain things were uh, able to, uh, to come about. So the conclusion that I very uh, briefly sketch out in the article, and I've been working on um, a bit more and I hope to have as a, a more full conclusion in their book, is about responsibility and truth commissions. It's not surprising, given that commissions in the past just seem to be providing an account, that people have a prosecution preference, um, but a kind of commission which is tasked principally with holding to account uh, could, I think, have a, a much more significant effect than the truth commissions that uh, we've been seeing uh, recently. Now, what would they have to look like? Well, the truth commissions, we know, um, are judged to be uh, more successful when they have powers of subpoena, when they have powers of search and seizure, when they can name perpetrators, when they can make mandatory recommendations. And given that there's already evidence uh, that, uh, and this is uh, from Patricia Haynes' work principally, that there's already uh, evidence that when they have strong resources and strong support, truth commissions are judged to be more successful than those commissions that don't, and there's nothing that's illogical there. Um, It seems fairly clear that one should support commissions which have significant powers. And importantly, these commissions should also have the authority to hold not just individuals to account, because that would be where they most useful, is to think beyond individual action, beyond the simplicity of imagining that crimes are committed by really intentional individuals who are acting um, uh, significantly out of the, uh, the uh, influence of others, uh, but should look at uh, groups and maybe of you well, that's what South Africa did, and the South African Truth Commission was intended to look at the responsibility of uh, industries, uh, groups, and so on. But it tended to collapse, again, for reasons that would be interesting to investigate, Um, back to a focus on individuals, and some of the criticisms of the South African Truth Commission are that in focusing on individuals, rather than in focusing on bigger societal, formal, and informal groups, or collectives, it enabled a lot of the people who have benefited from the system of apartheid to get away with that benefit, not to have to consider what their effects were, what their responsibilities in terms of building a body politic ongoing were going to be because the responsibility for individual acts was largely uh, individualized. So if we were to develop these kind of mechanisms and um, then I think they, uh, uh, making sure that they have a remit to cover Uh, a much more sophisticated range of actions and and looking back at which I've done some earlier work um, political and philosophical ideas of responsibility which uh, make the idea of the individual responsibility incredibly difficult to sustain anyway it's a fiction and we all know it's a fiction in courts um, that can be hard to sustain in these examples I've given it's very hard to sustain philosophically it's impossible to sustain um, a a through and through idea of uh, individual responsibility um, and uh, acting largely un out of the influence of others or out of the control of others. So we can think about action in this way and responsibility in this way through commissions, uh, then you, it enables us to think differently about what accountability is for because you get to a discussion about rebuilding the body politic. And I was Marion Young um, thinks about political responsibility in a way I find very attractive here. She talks about uh, the outcome of political responsibility is consisting, I'm quoting here, in watching our social institutions, monitoring their effects to make sure they're not grossly harmful and maintaining organised public space where such watching and monitoring can occur, and citizens can speak publicly and support one another in their efforts to prevent suffering. Now these goals are clearly not appropriate to courts, but this is not what we should be asking war crimes trials to do. But I'm fairly convinced that they're very good goals to pursue. And it concerns me that we have an accountability uh, system in which those kinds of goals can't be pursued because they seem to me to be ones that have been much more likely to avoid uh, conflict recurring in the future than simply a uh, goal of imprisoning those who are found uh, to be individually guilty. So I've been talking, I think, for about 40 minutes. I might I can say a little something about atonement and the importance of it, but I will say it's important. Um I leave it there. <laughs> I hope that if there's something it comes out in questions.
0: Thank Brilliant, thanks very much, cool.